Hi, and welcome to Extra Serving, an award-winning podcast by Nation's Restaurant News. I am your host, Holly Petrie. Today, we're going to be talking about the recent report from the NRA. The State of the Industry report predicted that food service sales will almost hit $1 trillion this year. That's up 6.4% from the year prior, which exceeded predictions, largely due to menu price increases, which we're all very much aware of as consumers. Um, Next, what happens when you ban unaccompanied children from restaurants? Well, one Chick-fil-A unit in Pennsylvania is doing just that, banning children under 16 from dining in without their parents due to raucous behavior. Will other chains follow? We'll talk about it. And celebrities are back in the food game. No, they're not franchising, but they are the stars of ad campaigns in what feels like a season with more celebrities than ever before. After a few years of silence on the marketing front due to COVID, brands are back and swinging hard with new celebrity ad campaigns. This week's guest is Local Kitchen COO and co-founder Andrew Monday. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear this interview. And now it's time to introduce my two co-hosts. I'm Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief of Nation's Restaurant News. And I'm Leanne Zinsmeister, Managing Editor of Nation's Restaurant News. And now I'm going to turn it over to this week's advertiser. Texas Pete is taking its flavor on the road with convenient, easy-to-enjoy portion control packets. Whether it's a Texas Pete dip cup or sauce packet, your customers will be able to enjoy bold flavor for a better on-the-go dining experience, anywhere, anytime. Ask your broker for the number one portion control hot sauce or visit TexasPeteFoodService.com for more information. All right, guys. Well, welcome back. Leanne and I are in the same room finally, uh, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Even though it creates all kinds of fun technical issues for recording a podcast, but who needs that? Who needs that? I totally get that. Um, well, let's just dive right in, guys. I feel like we have a lot to talk about, and I feel like we're going to get a lot of talking done because there are some controversial topics in here. Shall yes. we start with the most controversial? Okay. <laughs> we love controversy. When Holly puts something on my calendar at 9 a.m., I feel spicy. And I had a spicy week in the last week, too, so going to lose subscribers between these last two episodes. People are going to be over it. It's all right. I've also hopped up on at least four cups of coffee at the moment. So just the heart rate's going real fast. Fun for us. Yeah. Can't wait. Okay. So uh, Chick-fil-A, one Chick-fil-A unit to be specific, is banning children under the age of 16 from dining in unaccompanied. They need a parent or a guardian or somebody who is an adult with them. Um I know both of you have a lot of thoughts about children in restaurants, Um, so (laughs) I will just let you guys take it away. Well, yeah, I said Leanne and I are going to be point-counterpoint on this subject, uh, because I think Leanne hears no kids in a restaurant and hears angels singing somewhere. Um, But, uh, you know, look, uh, let's just start with a basic fact here. Um, You should not do this, (laughs) Um, purely because it is bad optics. I mean, let's just say it that way. I, I, I understand why a restaurant might want to do something like this um, uh, functionally, right? Uh, I've been to restaurants and bars before where children disrupt my experience. I I had a uh, a favorite um, bar uh, years ago that tried to ban kids after 7 p.m. And, um, you know, 
it was it did not go well, right? Uh, and I knew why they were doing it, right? I mean, they were trying to say, look, after seven p.m., first off, kids should be in bed, but second off, you know, you're trying to create a very laid back environment, and children are the opposite of laid back, right? So um, they ended up having to scrap that plan. Um, you know, one reason why a, something like this particular bar, uh, it was problematic is it was a um, big warehousey place where it was very common for um, people, myself included, to take young children, you know, babies, toddlers, because um, you're eager to go find a place to hang out where you're accepted with small children, uh, breweries and bar, but the big bars that are in like warehouses, those became a really good spot to do that because, uh, they're loud anyway, and kids can run around their space. And, you know, look, people who don't like kids go somewhere else. Parents need a place. Right. But again, going back to the reason you cannot actively say no children allowed at a certain time or without an adult or whatever is because it sounds super mean. <laughs> you just, it just, you can't, like, you can't do that. Like, and I, again, I understand the spirit of it, but, but here we are talking about it, right? Like this wouldn't have been a story if they had never announced to everybody, no children without supervision. Um, I think there's other ways around it, like, you know, finding ways to engage the kids. Um, you know, maybe there's a way to set up uh, part of your restaurant with more family activities, maybe having, I mean, this is a Chick-fil-A, have somebody at the door guiding families to special seating area where you're free to be loud. Um, I don't know the situation specifically. Raucous behavior and Chick-fil-A are not two terms that I ever would necessarily put together. So I don't know where the Chick-fil-A is or what kind of raucous behavior is happening there. Um, but, you know, <laughs> The last option you should ever choose if you're having a problem with raucous children is telling the children they're not allowed to be there because parents are, uh, you know, you get the mama bear thing going on, right? Where it's just like, oh, you're not going to tell me I can't bring my child in here. You are going to have a PR crisis on your hands and national podcasts are going to talk about you. So here we are. Anyway, okay, Leanne, you go. I don't think this is going to be the argument that you seem to be gearing up for. Um, Here we go. Come on, Leanne, bring it. With anything you just said, but I do want to clarify a couple of points on this story, which Holly wrote up for our website this week. The first of all is that they're banning unaccompanied children. So you can still bring your six and four year olds to Chick-fil-A. Um, Good. I will also just add that a part of the problem they're having is that they're down the street from some sort of, trampoline park or activity place of Ooh. some kind. And so I think the problem they're having is that parents are dropping off their older children at the trampoline park and the kids are instead walking down the street to Chick-fil-A and causing trouble there or going to their trampoline park and getting riled up as children do and then going to Chick-fil-A and taking out that energy there. So just to like clarify the specifics on the story. Um, I don't disagree with you. I think kids are fine to be at Chick-fil-A. It's a Chick-fil-A. I don't go to Chick-fil-A if I'm looking for a nice, quiet dinner. Um, I don't personally go to Chick-fil-A at all, but I go to quick service restaurants when I need a quick, cheap meal. Um, and families with young children are part of the deal on that. And I understand that even though I have cultivated a bit of a reputation um, as a woman in my 30s who doesn't want kids, that doesn't mean I never <laughs> want to see children anywhere ever. <laughs> Just to clarify some things. Um, so Everybody that, was so wondering, I know. I, mean, I think you guys paint me as like some sort of villain on this topic. Um, <laughs> 
And while I feel strongly about not having children, like, living in my home, I understand that they exist in the world. And I'm grateful for kids um, when they do things like sell me Girl Scout cookies. So, anyway, slight tangent. But um, Mm -hmm. kids are good for some things, and kids should be allowed to go to (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Sounds like Leanne and I need to talk some things out here on our podcast with thousands of people listening. I also did just spend, like, almost $50 on Girl Scout cookies that I bought from Sam's daughter, so... Anybody, Anybody needs Girl Scout cookies, shoot me an email. <laughs> we'll drop a link. No, um, <laughs> yeah, link in the show notes. Let's do it. Oh, my first thought on the Chick-fil-A story was actually, um, and I don't know if this is still true. I don't know how universal this was. But when I was in high school, the Chick-fil-A in my hometown had a reputation for being a place that hired teenagers starting when they were 14 and so it was like the first place that kids could go get a job if they needed one or wanted one um and so again i don't know if all chick-fil-a is higher at 14 i don't know if they still do it sounds illegal now that i'm saying it as an adult but i don't know um but my first thought was does this chick-fil-a hire 14 and 15 year olds and how do they justify having a 14-year-old behind the counter, but that 14-year-old's best friend can't be in the restaurant unsupervised? Do the employees' parents have to accompany them to work now? Um, I say that facetiously. I doubt it's true. <laughs> um, or do they only hire 16 and up, which I think is a more like universal standard? Um, so that was my you first should. thought. I generally, I don't have a huge problem with the policy because of the unaccompanied detail because of the specifics of the situation i understand what you're saying about the optics i will say all of the comments or like the majority of the comments on the facebook post about this that the restaurant made were positive um where people <laughs> say good for you Chick-fil-A. Um, so i don't know if those are locals who have seen the experience get out of hand um or if they're just you know curmudgeons but yeah and i think and and look i don't know um Clearly, I should have researched this story, but I, I don't know. Like, did they put a sign in the window or did they like who? How did this become a story? I guess is my question. Holly, you wrote this thing for us. How did this become a story? There was a lengthy Facebook post about it um, from the okay. restaurant directly, and then it just got picked up by people. OK, so that's so that's my issue here. And I think that's my imparting wisdom to people is I just don't think the restaurant should announce these things. I mean, put a sign in the window or something and do damage control later if people go to Facebook to complain. But I guess my thing is, is like you're you're, you're bringing attention to yourself by saying, hey, no kids allowed here or un- unaccompanied you know, kids here. Um and it becomes a big thing because, again, like, I, I, I obviously I'm very clearly enmeshed in this life and hearing that there's a trampoline park nearby. I'm like, oh, my gosh, is this my neighborhood? I know a trampoline park next to Chick-fil-A five minutes from my house. Um, and I might do that thing with my kids. I might drop them off at the trampoline park, walk down to the Chick-fil-A. Now they're too young for that. But, you know, point is, is like parents are passionate people and we are super defensive of our children, of course. Again, the mama bear thing. And it's like. When you tell us what our kids can and, can and cannot do, uh, you know, certainly within reason, I like to think I'm a reasonable adult and say, yeah, of course, I don't want my kids to be alone in Chick-fil-A and I want them to behave and I, you know, expect to, to, I want the best for that business. But simultaneously, I think there's just that thing that you can, you know, that itch that gets scratched or that, uh, I don't know what the analogy is here, but it's a little bit like a bomb going off, right? Because when parents who are defensive of their children and here, my kid can't go to Chick-fil-A by themselves 
themselves until they're 16, I think they get, they just get very emotional about it. So, um, yeah, that's my parting words. Don't announce it. Don't really do it. Like find other ways around it because you're just gonna, you know, you're just gonna really anger some of your core customers and it's gonna become a whole thing. See, I think it's a great idea. I am the counterpoint apparently today. Um, I think it's a wonderful idea. Mainly because, (laughs) well, so the things that these kids were doing, they were stealing stuff. They were like loudly cursing. They were um, cursing at the workers when they wouldn't, when they would tell them to be quiet. Um, I mean, it it legitimately sounds like bad behavior and it was coming from a lot of people. And I know how against cursing you are, Holly. (laughs) I don't curse on this podcast, which is very important. Keep our keep our ratings we need, high. We need a good rating. We need a good, look, keep it clean. And you're right. Like d- lousy kids. Like that. That sucks. And I know that probably a lot of people listening to this are like, yeah, I've got some of those people in my business too. I just think like there's got to be something else. Like there's got to be. And look, I know that now everybody has a budget to hire like a security or to put one of your employees on security detail or something like that. But. You know, like that, look for other ways to navigate around the situation besides saying you're not allowed, I guess, I don't, because it just, it sounds wrong. And when you say you're not allowed to the bad kids, unfortunately, you're also not allowing the good kids who could come in who are 15 and, you know, want to be there without their parents. How many 15 year olds who are unaccompanied are good? I've seen them all at the mall and they, I was one of those kids at the mall. <laughs> And I was a mess. So, and apparently Sam is a mess dropping things. So, I am. I mean, I'm thinking ad- adults shouldn't be unaccompanied either. I feel like there should be. <laughs> I'm always a mess when I'm inside a Chick fil A, too. I don't even know what I dropped or where it went. Anyway, let's move on to our next subject. I was a good kid, just for the record. Okay, we can move on. <laughs> we, we needed to, yeah, we needed to know uh, who, who was good to and no who was... one. Leanne was a good kid. <laughs> Like, shocker, Leanne was a good kid. (laughs) And Holly was a bad one. Shocker. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about the NRA report, because we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this, uh, because I firmly believe that it was the right choice. Anyways, and that's the last word. So, haha. Says the Um, non-parent. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Um, So, anyways, uh, the NRA released this report that food sales are going to get close to $1 trillion. I mean, that's an insane amount of money that we're talking about. And it's largely due to menu price increases. So, I mean, there's a reason for it. And it's probably going to come back down when menu prices come back down. But, I mean, that's an insane amount of money. What do you guys think? I don't know. I think a trillion dollars is a perfectly reasonable amount of money, Holly. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Um, I also think it's worth noting here that uh, when you adjust these numbers for inflation, um, a trillion dollars or $997 billion, I think is the number they're giving, um, is still below uh, 2019 levels uh, when you adjust for inflation, which also says a lot about the state of inflation right now more than anything. Um, but yeah, sales are going up. Menu prices are going up. We knew that already. Um, one of the fascinating things about this report to me every year is just to look back and see, you know, how accurate was the previous year. Um, and 2022's numbers far surpassed the NRA's predictions. Um, somewhat unsurprisingly, I mean, because these menu price increases and inflation like have been ongoing for months and months. And so 
it makes sense that the numbers would exceed. Um, so I think one of the most interesting things is that it is a number so close to $1 trillion um, that if things go the same way as they did last year, we could easily surpass that this year. And that'll be the interesting thing to watch um, a year from now. But I don't have any strong thoughts or opinions beyond that one way or the other on this Yeah, one. I mean, I think it's it's great to see the recovery from the restaurant industry, right? I mean, you know, considering that the industry lost $200 billion in 2020, like sales went down, collective sales went down $200 billion. And to see the industry recover to near 2019 levels adjusted for inflation um, is great. And uh, the other thing I would cite is that yesterday, the MPD group put out some data that said that in 2022, 18,000 uh, restaurant, either 18,000 restaurants opened or the restaurant industry grew by a net 18,000 locations. I, I, I need to double check that, but, um, you know, point being is that we're back to growth and, and, you know, I'm sure the NRA tempered their, um, expectations, uh, cause Leanne, to your point, uh, 2022 exceeded expectations that you probably, you know, they're probably tempering expectations a, because it looks better if you exceed expectations than fall short of them, but also B because it's just like, I think we've all learned. It's like, you know, you never know what's around the corner this year. We don't know if a recession's around the corner or not. Chance of that is actually going down. Um, but still, I think it's, you know, you just, you don't hold your breath. So, um, so the, the headline here for sure is celebrating the recovery of the restaurant industry, getting back to, you know, growth mode, opening restaurants again, growing in sales again. Um, 1 trillion is just a staggering amount of money. But when you remember there's about a million restaurants in the United States, you're, yeah, that makes sense. That, that adds up. Um, and yeah, the report, there's a lot more to the report, of course, besides how much sales uh, the restaurant industry is going to do, um, which you can go to nrn.com and read our colleague Ron Ruggles' uh, um, analysis of that study because you can get more information pu than purely the sales number. But all around, and because I, I think don't think Sam read it, so he can't really give all the information that we need. <laughs> we also, it's worth noting, have some further analysis coming on this report um, in the coming days. So you can read the basic um, first thoughts on the website now, and then you can come back um, and we're going to dig deeper into the details on the website soon. But if we can really sum it up here, one trillion good. <laughs> Thank you Thanks for that. For that analysis. <laughs> oh man. See, feeling spicy again. I need to have a lot of coffee before this more. Apparently. Yeah. Well, now it's time to talk about Leanne and my favorite thing, which is celebrities. I'm going to go ahead and mute myself for this one. If you guys <laughs> we love celebrity here. Um, and so, so do brands, apparently. A lot of brands. It seems like more than usual. I talked to Alicia Kelso for an upcoming episode of First Bite, and she said that it definitely is more than usual that we're seeing celebrities get involved with these brands, restaurants, companies, whatever we want to call them. Yes, to you know all. You a lot of words, Holly. Yeah, like a regular walking thesaurus. Anyways, um, brands are getting involved in celebrities more and more. We've seen McDonald's famous orders starting in 2020. Those are continuing on even this year. Um, we're seeing Jersey Mike's. We're seeing KFC. I mean, it seems endless. So what do you guys think? One of the most interesting parts of this um, 
whole thing for me has been to watch which celebrities are chosen by which brands to be like the face of the brand. Um, and even the way they talk about it is totally different. So KFC has revamped its whole marketing program in the last few years and has specifically said that they are targeting Gen Z. Everything that KFC does in the marketing arm is because they want those younger customers, which makes sense. Jersey Mike's on the other hand uh, is specifically targeting older generations. They even, I don't know if this was meant to be shade at KFC, but they told Alicia um, specifically, a lot of brands are targeting Gen Z and we are targeting Gen Z's parents. Um, so they're working with Danny DeVito right now. Um, and so it's just interesting to watch, I mean, no, none of the celebrities have like surprised me yet. Like none of them have made me go, wow, I can't believe this person is working with this brand. I think they've all made a lot of sense, which is probably good. They're natural um, combinations. Of course, my favorite is, and I think we've talked about it before, the Ben Affleck Super Bowl ad with Duncan, because that is just so organic because there's not a person in this world, including Sam, who doesn't know that Ben Affleck is Duncan's number one fan. So um, I know a little bit about Hollywood. Thank you very he, much. He's heard of Ben Affleck. And I've heard of he Ben Affleck. Yeah. I've seen ben. Armageddon. Come on. <laughs> um, so those are, yeah, those are the most interesting pieces for me. Who are we targeting and then who are we working with? Um, and it, it has, it's been a lot of fun to watch um, some of these campaigns unfold. Now McDonald's has been, back at it for like three years now working with celebrities. And so we've seen the numbers on it. We've seen the huge success that these campaigns have brought McDonald's. And so, and I think the other companies have too, and that's why they're all, you know, working with celebrities now too. So it'll be interesting to see um, if this is a universal success for the restaurant industry. Um, so I'm eager to watch it all play out. Yeah, I mean, it definitely depends on how you put these celebrities to use, too, that I, I'm interested to see. I mean, um, and, and to sort of illustrate your point, uh, KFC is uh, Jack Harlow is the KFC celebrity, right? Okay, so I don't know much about him, but I know he's a young guy that sings, I think. Um, oh, boy, I, I have officially become my father. Um, but Jack Harlow, the Gen Z appeal, I guess, is there. But then um, Chili's last week uh, enlisted Brian McKnight, who is, you know, I forgot that name, but whoa, 20 years ago, sure. I mean, he had, I, 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 I would say one hit wonder, but there are probably some Brian McKnight fans listening that are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, but point is, is like there was a specific use of Brian McKnight in the Chili's campaign for that one song. Am, am I getting this right? I Because I saw that Brian McKnight and Chili's, but I assume it's for that one very big song he had, and that's how they're using it for their campaign, which, again, similar to the Jersey Mike situation, that has appeal to us 90s folk who remember that song and can connect to the, you know Brian McKnight to it. Um, and I think Chili's is trying to, um, you know, they're... they're, they're they're creating sort of a vibe there. They're, they're trying to create um, sort of a humor to that. Um, and Brian McKnight clearly in on the joke because he's participating in it as well. You know, whereas you can, you could just slap Jack Harlow in your ad and the Gen Z is like, whoa, I must 
follow anything they do because Jack Harlow I'm a big fan of. Um, and Danny DeVito with Jersey Mike's. Again, you, nobody just sees Danny DeVito and thinks, i got to go to Jersey Mike's. He has a shtick. He uses it in his the ad for Jersey Mike's. It's funny. It connects to a certain type of person. Um, McDonald's, I think, is doing it very uniquely with these uh, famous meals because it's not just put these people in our ad. It's also go eat the food that they eat, and that clearly resonates because those things sell out, like, so fast. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I think the point is, is like having a celebrity in your ad, or should we call it now an influencer in your ad? Because sometimes they're people who aren't necessarily famous for, you know, a talent, uh, more famous for the fact that they're famous, right? That's what I see influencers as being as, um, yes, I am very, very old. Um, but you know, clearly if you have influence on social media or otherwise, it's like, you have a horde of people who will do anything, basically, you say, uh, for better or worse. So brands are very wisely tapping into that. Um, I think it makes a ton of sense. But again, it just it has to fit your brand. It has to fit the vibe you're trying to create, the marketing that you're trying to pull off. Um, and, you know, clearly it has to a mesh with the audience of the person that you have chosen. Um, and those examples we've used so far, I think they all seem to really get it because I think it all all of those examples make a lot of sense. Well, to bring another example in, there is the Chipotle partnering with TikTok influencers. This is not the first time Chipotle's partnered with a TikTok influencer. They partnered with um, the Corn Kid earlier. But um, they also have – I feel like you'd really like that video, Sam. Oh, I I've seen like it. No, it. I've seen it. I'm shaking my head because I'm like 20 years from now, we're going to look back and be like, what was Corn Kid? You know, like, huh? It's just these little these little flashpoints in culture are so fascinating to me because they're just like real head scratchers. I don't know. Anyway. But so um, they recently introduced uh, a new quesadilla in partnership with two TikTok influencers who created this based on a menu hack. Um, and now it's part of their menu. So, I mean, they're partnering with these people as a way to spread the message because they have so many millions of followers. But they're also saying we're introducing this menu item based on what you guys have done on TikTok, that, that we're seeing these menu hacks, we're accepting them, and we're saying let's just make it a part of our menu. So that's kind of the other, the other part of the equation. It's really smart. Yeah. And by the way, if you had told me, you know, eight years ago that Chipotle was going to do that, I'd be like, yeah, right. Um, but they're embracing it. I mean, you know, that's obviously they have a whole new regime there that's that's actually doing LTOs and things like that. But it's a it's it's really smart. I think, you know, part of the capturing the zeitgeist, you know, the, the challenge for every marketer is to, you know, appear like you get it, like you're in on the joke, like you're, you're with it or whatever, you know, like you don't want to, you don't want to come across as inauthentic or old or, you know, like you don't know what you're talking about. You've got to be kind of in on it. And so what Chipotle is doing there is really smart because it's, yeah, it's saying like, Hey, we're cool too. Like we, you know, you're, you're doing this hack already. Like we're, we're in on it. We're, we'll play along. Cause remember, I mean, I think it was Chipotle that was like actively trying to shut some of this stuff down before. I mean, even in the last couple of years, um, and that doesn't resonate with Gen Z that, you know, the TikTok generation, they don't like that. They want you to, to play along. And so, so here they are playing along and I think they'll see a lot of, they'll, they'll, they'll see the benefits of that. Are you saying Chipotle's hip? They're cool. They're down with it. <laughs> I felt like that was the word that was about to come out of your mouth. It just felt very like natural to that moment that you were going to say, Chipotle's hip. And I was I'm trying to feel, I'm trying to like decide how much to lean into my old man uh, uh, pedigree. Because <laughs> 
I just, I'm actively seeing myself move in that direction. Anyway, I embrace it. And you're not even that old. Well, you know, I had a couple of kids, settled down, got the white picket fence, you know, I'm old now. Do you really have a white picket fence? No, it's a brown picket fence. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I was curious. (laughs) It's a fence. (laughs) You have a fence to keep people out. Go away. Yeah. Yeah. And keep your kids in like a little cage. I'm a curmudgeon. I only let them out to go to (laughs) (laughs) Chick-fil-A. And run around wild. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's wrap this up. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to toss it over to my interview with Local Kitchen COO and co-founder Andrew Monday. But first, I'm going to thank you guys so much for joining me today. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Holly. Texas Pete is taking its flavor on the road with convenient, easy-to-enjoy portion control packets. Whether it's a Texas Pete dip cup or sauce packet, your customers will be able to enjoy bold flavor for a better on-the-go dining experience, anywhere, anytime. Ask your broker for the number one portion control hot sauce or visit TexasPeteFoodService.com for more information. All right, so welcome to the podcast. I'd love to get started by just talking about what Local Kitchens is. Yeah, so Local Kitchens is a micro food hall. So I think we've learned a lot about how to describe it over the years. I actually think one of my best tips is to ask your guests. I think we have so many different contexts in which we describe it. We describe it to investors. We describe it to friends and family. We describe it to guests. And it's different for there are different ways to explain it for all those audiences. So uh, I think if I was just at a party and someone asked me, how do you describe it? I go kind of the guest route and say, you know, it's, it's a store, it's a kitchen that has all of your favorite food in it. So we have eight to 10 different brands in each kitchen. And on the merchant side, you know, we do all the work. So we do all the cooking. Uh, We essentially get their recipes and then cook it exactly how they would have done it and how they do it. And they're brick and mortars today. So same recipes, same everything. And then we have pickup, we have delivery, uh, and we have dine-in at most of our stores. And so you have multiple local kitchens. I mean, that's pretty exciting. We do. We have 10 now. That's a that's a big number for a food hall concept. Um, I actually learned about you from a concept that's in local kitchens. Um, so that was exciting. And then I I read all about local kitchens and it was really fun to hear um, your story. So can you kind of tell the story of how the concept came to be? Yeah, it was pretty interesting. It was in the middle of the pandemic. John and I, our CEO, my co-founder, had worked together at DoorDash. I was the first employee there. He was there uh, basically at the same time, probably started maybe in the same day. Um, and we'd always wanted to work together, always wanted to start a company together. Finally, the stars aligned. We wanted to do something in food. I think the market in food is not only enormous, but impactful. So on on so many dimensions, right? That's like how we gather today is Friday. How many people will get together tonight to eat together, right? That that's probably the most common thing people will do tonight socially is eat, um, And then you think of supply chain and waste and all these things. And it's just like one of the most impactful industries, if not the most on the whole world. 
on so many different dimensions. So food is just an industry that I think um, sucks you in and for, for a variety of reasons. And so we started talking to people who make the food, restaurant owners, and asking them what their pain points were. We actually heard a lot about expansion. And this was when ghost kitchens were kind of on the rise. And so we asked, um, you know, why don't you use ghost kitchens? And we heard the same thing over and over, which was all these merchants saying, I will never open another brick and mortar. And we were like, but that's crazy. You know, you have these units doing three, $4 million. They're printing cash. That seems great. Um, but it's the day-to-day -day management of ordering, receiving, managing staff, managing GMs, minimum wage goes up. Um, hourly workers, like all of these things that, um, can be challenging, but also really rewarding. I think when someone has, let's say one or two units and it's going really well, um, and they've been at it for 10 years, they're not always the most motivated to add stress to their life, you know? So we realized that the ghost kitchen thing wasn't a great solution because that solves the space and equipment problem, but that's not their problem. These are great businesses. They can get loans, they can get spaces. That's not it. It's the day-to-day -day management. So we told our first partner, Proposition Chicken, well, what if we did it all? You know, we essentially said that that's what we do. And then we had to go figure out how to do that. Right. Um, and that was kind of the start of it. And then the multi-brand angle really took off where, you know, we, we launched Lafayette with I think four or five brands and I'll never forget, you know, moms and dads coming in with three different carts. So they would order on DoorDash and check out of three different carts. And I was like, what, why are you doing this? And they're like, well, we have kids and the kids want this and we want this. And I was like, and you're actually like doing that for your kids. Um, and it was just like a no brainer. And so we didn't even have a website yet. And I was like, Hey, well, we should just have people order direct through our website. They can check out of one cart, you know, we can make this super easy. And so that was really how kind of the second part of our concept launched, which was, um, you know, multi-brand ordering where you can get uniquely different items. You can get a melt burger, right? You can get a salad from properties and chicken. Um, all from the same place at the same time, you know, it was just like totally mind blowing. I mean, it's so interesting that you eliminate the no vote this way, because you can have so many different options at the same time. It's ordering for a big family. It's ordering for a big group of people. And you just have every option available from 10, 10 different locations. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, what was it like developing that technology? It's challenging and it's ongoing. As you can imagine, with eight to 10 brands, everything's harder. Purchasing's harder. FIFO and the walk-in is harder. Training is harder. Um, what you display on the kitchen display system is harder. All that stuff. So you really have to take a first principles approach. You know, you can't start this with an analogy-based, you know, oh, well, it's a restaurant, so we should schedule people like this other place or we should train people like this other place. Because the reality is sometimes... Let's say between 2 and 5 p.m., uh, there's maybe 30% of the staff you have at 6 p.m. And so you don't have one person on every station. You have two people who need to know, you know, five stations, which means they know 10 different brands. And so um, part of it is it's really all around the technology that tells you how to cook, when to cook, when to prep, all these things. Um, we're really trying to create leverage for humans, right? I think humans will always be, I, I'm not, I think like I'm certain humans will always be at the core of what we do, both serving them and, you know, working in the, in the stores. And so we're trying to make it easier. You know, I don't want someone doing math 
on the line, right? Trying to figure out some recipe. I want to tell them exactly what to prep and how much to prep so that they can focus on the care and the respect for the food that we need, right? That's really interesting to think about that you're not only developing technology to create this one cart system, but you're also developing technology to help line cooks figure out what they have to do for each individual restaurant. I mean, what is that like for the restaurants that come to you that say, we want to be in local kitchens, we want to grow with local kitchens? Um, what do you say to them when when you say, you know, we have this technology, we can do this for you? Yeah, I think they are all excited by it. And even when I interview people from other restaurants, um, some of the ones that have been around for eight to 10 years in our public, they always say, you know, oh, we really wanted to build that or, you know, we're trying to get that on our roadmap. And so um, it's not that we're like technology first, I would say we're, we're guest first. But, uh, you know, one of our operating principles is like being software minded. And so when we think about solving problems, we always have a software lens. And so the key, and I think the, where, where people can go awry is creating tech for tech's sake, right? Creating like bells and whistles. And so when we build technology, we think a lot about outcomes and those outcomes are everything that's on the PL: labor, cogs, um, and, and even on the operational side with all of those metrics of quality. And so anytime someone has an idea, we're thinking, you know, what metric does it move and how quickly and how will it do that? I mean, it seems like your concept is built for Gen Z. I mean, it just seems primed and ready for Gen Z. Like this is just something that Gen Z isn't like going inside restaurants anymore. They don't like, they like doing curbside delivery. They like doing, they like ordering from different brands. They like cool new brands. I mean, like, it just seems like you're primed and ready for this new generation of people who have all of this buying power. I think that's right. I think it's, I think hopefully everyone, you know, we're lucky that we see uh, anyone from a high school kid who's 14 to a grandparent who's, you know, 85. Um, and I think that that's also a key point of technology is that is it intuitive to the Gen Z person who, um, you know, can can even understand a, a touchscreen, right? Who knows which way to swipe and all that stuff's really intuitive to a really young person. But how do we also make that useful for uh, a grandparent who who might walk in and say, oh, I'm, I'm not good with tech, you know, and we want to have the idea that, hey, you know, you are good with tech and it's not even about being good with tech. This is just easier. I actually was in, um, I was in our Cupertino store yesterday and this woman, don't know her age, but definitely older. Um, and, you know, naturally we have Apple Pay and she had her card. Um, she wasn't using Apple Pay, but she was using the reader on the card, right? And she was like, oh, and I can just like tap this thing and pay, right? And I was like, yeah, like exactly. You know what to do, right? So, um, you know, we really want to appeal to every generation and it goes back to food, right? Everyone from babies to, um, you know, 90 year olds are eating food. And so that, that's kind of how we, we think about it. Everyone has to eat. That's an essential part of life, an essential part of your business. I mean, so you talk a lot about the guests and the fact that your business is focused on guest experience. How are you making the guest experience as great as it can be? It's thinking about the the value prop of what they want. So at the core for us, it's it's mix and match. So if you go deeply into that, that's just having food available, which is not trivial at all. So, you know, if we're uh, running out of items, then the guests can't have exactly what they want, uh, which is always a challenge for, for our company. 
the other side of it is really the hospitality approach of, um, as we always say, you know, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. So if uh, a guest comes in and has some special requests, you know, we're going to do it. Um, and so whenever someone would ask me in the store, hey, can I do this? Um, I'm always going to turn it back on them and say, what do you think you should do? And at some point that probably gets annoying. But I think as you push past that, I think people feel really empowered that they have this autonomy to do whatever it takes to make the guest happy. And then culturally, like I'm just talking about this nonstop in every company meeting, uh, in, in everything. Right. And so we are, and now it's kind of working We're we're compounding this and, um, you hear everyone else in the company talking about the guest. And, um, one thing I'm probably known for is just, um, correcting people. You know, it could be any context, any meeting. If someone says the word customer, I will immediately jump in and say guest. Um, it, it's just a completely different tone, right? Like if I came to your house, I'm a guest, take my shoes off, maybe you get me some water, all these things. Um, customer just feels a little more rough and transactional and um, just not quite what we're after. Well, especially since you're talking about hospitality, it sounds like it, it needs to be something that's at the forefront saying guest rather than customer. Totally. It just puts people in that mindset because I can't teach people all these little things, open the door, uh, walk out to their car with them with their bags, do these things. Like it would be a list of 500 things. But if we create this culture idea of the guest and hospitality, uh, then it kind of guides you to all those behaviors that are a really magical experience for the guest. I find it so interesting to hear you say hospitality because I don't think about that when I go to a food hall. But I'm really curious to hear, I'm based in New York, so I haven't been to local kitchens, but um, I'm curious to hear how you bring hospitality to the forefront at a place that is a food hall where people don't essentially think that hospitality is involved. Yeah, I think uh, hospitality and like caring for a guest, it, it can even be in your technology. I think making food as close to the estimated time as possible uh, to me, that's hospitality because someone's driving from work to pick up and they have kids and the kids are hungry and all that stuff. And I think taking that amount of care is like a very hospitable thing to do. And so in everything we do, I think we're thinking about it. And then it really comes down to hiring. You know, when you are interviewing people, understanding, do they live and breathe um, serving the guests? You know, we have many, many great, uh, this position we call a greeter. It's basically welcoming you in to the store. Um, and these are the people that are smiling and just kind of doing whatever it takes. And then it's drawing a hard line with that. You know, if someone is a great employee on many dimensions, maybe they show up on time, um, they do their functions right, they always clock in right, they do all these like fundamental things, but they're not um, kind of over the top friendly, then we have to find someone else. And so it's it's really like documenting a culture and then sticking to it. And, and being really relentless on that, especially at this stage, right? We're 10 stores on our way to 100 and 200 and 500 and 1,000. Um, we're in the wet cement stage, right? And the cement will be drying more and more as we progress. And we want to be happy with the, the end state of the sculpture. And so um, it's on us to be really honest and really tough on, you know, what exactly we're, we're doing here. Yeah. And that's so interesting that you brought up growth because that was my next uh topic to go towards. As you grow, what are you looking for in restaurants that you partner with? But also, what are you looking for in terms of unit count? Yeah, it's a good question on partnerships. And I think we've learned a lot about it. I think partnership is the right word for it. So 
for example, you might have a store or, or a partner who's in New York or San Francisco, right? And they have certain dishes and certain prices and all of that. And if you really want to be across the U.S. and you want to be in a lot of different markets, um, you got to be flexible with that. You know, we have an incredible partner in um, Orange Hummus where uh, we came up with some creations together and some different dishes for our Davis location, which was just a different market, you know, and so... Uh, that's an amazing partnership. And I'm, you know, really happy to scale with Orange because um, we have the same goals in mind. Um, and it's just like very collaborative, right? And so our, 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 our responsibility is to like, bring the data and help people understand how markets are different and what's needed to expand um, to make it really easy on partners, and then make some slight tweaks so that we can all be successful together. And so um, that's the collaboration that we, we really look for. And I think our first, we got so lucky with our first partner, Proposition Chicken. Um, you know, I still message with their founder today and he's even on our business, like asking questions of, you know, what do you think about this and that? And, you know, the other day we were texting about a kid's menu. Um, and it's just, it's just like a true partnership, right? It, it, it works really, really well. And so what are your plans for growth of local kitchens? I mean, you're helping other restaurants grow, but what are your own plans of growth? Yeah, we want to grow aggressively, right? We look at all of these well-known companies and a lot of them are 30, 40 years old. And that's not really exciting to me or to us. You know, we want to do it in uh, five years, six years, seven years, right? So the mission of the company is to launch 2000 stores. Uh, that was from day one, what we said we wanted to do. And so, you know, we want to grow a large company, 30, $40 billion company. We look at... Um, you know, leaders like Chipotle. And, and that's the stuff that we really admire, you know, and so we want to follow in their footsteps and, you know, eventually beat them. And so, um, you know, we're lucky to have attracted a lot of people, partners, employees, and otherwise who uh, are just as crazy and as, and as intense as us. And um, they look at that goal and they say, yeah, why not? You know, why not us? So uh, really looking to expand like as aggressively as possible. Any short-term plans you could tell us about? Yeah, we're in SoCal expanding, you know, really excited about Texas and Colorado probably up next. And um, the good thing, I think, is that we started in California, which is one of the toughest places to operate. And so having so many profitable stores here gets us really excited, you know, for the next stage where, where uh, as I'm told, it's easier everywhere else. So we'll see. <laughs> Much easier than California in other states. That is at the tough state to handle. Lots of regulations. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It's been great. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity.